0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1 tonight. This week we are continuing... Uh, our verse-by-verse study through the book of Ephesians. Our series is called Death to Division because one of the major themes of this letter to the church at Ephesus is that sin created a barrier between us and God, and it separated us from one another. We were made as humans to know, love, and trust God and people. And Jesus made it possible once again to fulfill this divine purpose through his perfect life, his selfless sacrifice, and his glorious resurrection. The good news of the gospel is that we are free to walk again in the purpose for which we were created. God the Father, through Christ the Son, is not just gluing back together everything broken by sin, but as he said himself in Revelation 21, Behold, I am making all things new. I told you last week that the first three chapters of this letter, it lays out the purpose of the church and shows us the gospel power by which we fulfill that purpose. Chapter four is going to take a turn towards the pragmatic, laying out some of the practical application of the principles that we've seen so far. And so uh, if you need a Bible, we have cases of them for free. We really like giving Bibles away. You can get one of those at the connection kiosk after the service. If you don't have a Bible with you right now to follow along as we study God's Word, we will have the verses on the screens for you, okay? So, um, we're in Ephesians 4. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read to verse 14. Here we go. "'Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love.'" being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Praise God for his word. I don't know about you, but in my Bible, there was one word that needed a page flipped. Hallelujah, right? Uh, there is a week's worth of gold, multiple weeks' worth of gold. We could mine from the soil of these 14 verses. But we're going to narrow it down by looking through verse 12, sorry, verse 13 as kind of a lens to focus everything we're seeing here. So let me just read that to you one time. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You know what? We didn't read verse 14. Why don't you guys tell me? Somebody's got to wave when that happens. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Praise God for his word again. That's good. All right. Uh, so we see here that all of these things that Paul is talking about, they're, they're leading up to a goal. It's a purpose. That purpose is maturity. And we measure that maturity not by some arbitrary metric, but by the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's Paul's language. So for those who follow Jesus, it makes sense that he would be the ruler we use to measure. Many times we set the bar lower than walking in the fullness of Christ because we believe lies about what is possible based on our perception of our own abilities. Many times we see the distance between ourselves and Jesus, and I'm talking in terms of imitating him, that desire to be like him. We see that distance and we get overwhelmed, which causes us to settle for some lesser goal. But the Bible doesn't tell us to find coping mechanisms for our weaknesses, but instead to boast in them. Let me read something to you to back that statement up. 2 Corinthians 12 Verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, this is Paul, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Praise God. We're not supposed to come up with coping mechanisms for our weaknesses. We can boast in them because that opens the door for Christ to be glorified and for his strength to come through. So we see that it is not God's will for us to set a lower goal for maturing as followers of Jesus but instead to embrace the impossibility of ever reaching maturity without him. we got to embrace that. It is impossible. We will not do it without him. We are weak in many ways. Uh, but thankfully, he is strong. Uh, there is not unanimous agreement among psychologists on what the hardest stage of life is, uh, but there is almost unanimous agreement that the transition from childhood to adolescence uh, is one of the hardest stages of, of human life. Uh, to illustrate this, let's just think together. Do you guys remember middle school? Some of you already know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> uh, commonly referred to by many as the awkward stage, right? Um, your body is changing. You start smelling ways you've never smelled. You start sprouting hair in places it wasn't before, Right? Hormones begin to flood your system that you've never had to deal with. It's, it's a weird time. Growing and maturing spiritually can feel similar. Growth and change go hand in hand. And many times, change just flat freaks us out, if we're honest. So often, uh, there's times that we retreat from maturing and we settle back into what is comfortable. But verse 14 makes it pretty clear that this is not a viable option for those who have been rescued from the dungeons of the kingdom of darkness and set free to serve Christ in his kingdom of light. Let me just read verse 14 to you again in that context. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful Scheming. The call there being, we cannot just retreat back to the comfort of being children. Here we're talking about in terms of spiritual maturity. Uh, but the, the parallels to maturing physically are are worth noting. So that's kind of an overview, us setting the table. So let's go to verse one and we're gonna work through this, okay? says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So this is really saying the same thing that we've been working on in a different way. We must constantly remember and rehearse in our hearts and minds the great and glorious calling with which we have been called, and let that determine our thoughts, our words, and our actions. You may feel like you have no purpose, but God's word says you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, prepared beforehand so that you could walk in them. You may feel like you are alone in your efforts, but Jesus promised he would not just be with us, but he would dwell in us by his Holy Spirit. You may feel like you don't have anything to add when it comes to accomplishing God's mission of reconciling lost sinners to himself, But verse 7 of this very chapter says to each one of us, grace was given. And God has given leaders in the church the task of cultivating that grace and equipping you for the work of the ministry. As you mature, if you don't bail out on the process, there comes a point where you transition from being irresponsible to responsible. And the major difference... When you are irresponsible, you let other people bear the burden of taking care of whatever needs taken care of. But someone who is mature and responsible not only sees needs, but meets them. There are a lot of people who are good at seeing problems that need a solution and think that makes them mature. But maturity is not just seeing problems and pointing them out. It is stepping up to shoulder the responsibility of bringing an answer. How do you think it would go for me if I walk in the house and tell my wife, Natalie, hey, babe, the trash needs emptied, and then I strike a superhero pose, hands on my hips, expecting her to be so thankful that I noticed (laughs) the trash needs to be emptied, right? How do you think that's going to go for me? she's probably going to say something like, do you need me to draw you a map to the outside trash cans where the trash goes? Right? She would say something like cute and sassy like that because she's kind of cute and sassy. So I like it. It's, it's fine. She's funny. <clears throat> I would probably get a reality check real fast, right? And rightly so. You understand what I'm saying? If we've been called to follow Christ, then walking in a manner worthy of that calling is going to mean maturity and taking responsibility. Jesus didn't roll up to the Father one day and say, Hey, did did you notice that all of humanity is jacked up because of sin? The Scriptures say that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the world. And what that means is that Jesus knew what it would cost him to save us before he ever made us. Jesus has set a good example of not just noticing problems, but doing something about them. And he's the one we're following. We're going to take verses 2 through 10 together because they they can be and are going to be bundled as we approach them, especially through this lens. So verses 2 through 10, what we see here is some specific responsibilities of the mature believer, but also a reminder that the motivation and power to walk out these responsibilities comes from outside of us. So let's read again where the motivation and power comes from. That's going to be verses 4 through 10. Then we're going to come back up to verses 2 and 3 to see um, what we have been motivated and empowered to do. Okay? So verses 4 through 10. Let's read those first. I'm saying this is the motivation and and, and the the power that we need to obey the verses above. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. So, we see here that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who has unified us through the finished work of Christ who died and rose again. That's what it's talking about. He who ascended also descended, okay? But mixed in here, we have language about each one of us having grace given individually, right? So so what gives? What? What is? Why is all this together? Why is it laid out in this way? Here's here's what we're talking about. We are the body of Christ, broadly, but we are also members in particular. And these verses show us that the mission Jesus gave all of us is designed to include the participation of each of us. So, what specific element of our obedience are we talking about here? What must each mature believer take responsibility for so as to accomplish the purpose for which we have been joined together as the church of God. That is what verses 2 and 3 are going to tell us. What is our responsibility as mature believers? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice that we are called to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We do not create the unity. Verses 4 through 10 say Jesus already did the heavy lifting to create this unity among us. He made this possible through his life, death, and resurrection. We're not going to create this. We don't have that kind of power, but we are called to preserve it, to care about it, to understand that it's a real thing that needs to be nurtured. However, we must, each one of us, by the grace of God, walk in humility and gentleness and patience, Showing tolerance for one another. And all of these things can be summed up in our call to love one another. Everybody who wants to be a mature follower of Jesus and not a child, I want you to say this. Unity is my responsibility. Go ahead. If you want to be a mature believer, say unity is my responsibility. Amen. That's good. Now, this is true in your home. This is true in the local church. And it's true in the church globally. This actually taps into one of the core values here at Love City Church. We believe that unity is a key element of what the body of Christ is called to cultivate in the world. And we identify that in three places. First of all, in your home. If we don't have unity in our homes, it's going to be very hard for us to come together collectively as the local church. And have unity. If we're already letting seeds of discord uh, run amok and, and uh, all of the demonic influence that comes from letting strife just go unchecked, if we're letting that go in our homes, it can be very hard for us to come gather together and be unified for the uh, mission of spreading the gospel. Uh, aside from that, uh, I don't know if you've ever lived in a home full of tension and contention, uh, but it's a terrible environment. It's not what we were created for, uh, and it's, it's really horrible. So we, we believe that that's true in the home. It's true in the local church. Uh, It gets a little more complicated at this stage, right? Um, At least at your house, hopefully for the most part, uh, you have tender feelings of affection towards the people that live there under your roof. Hopefully that, uh, you know, you're committed to one another and, and you're probably got some similar likes and it's pretty easy to see that we're, our life is tied together and we're going in the same direction. When you come to the local church level, it's, it's harder to see those things. Uh, we we get a lot of difference, a lot of variety. I think God rejoices in that, and that's part of his design. Uh, in, in diversity, there is strength, but uh, it makes it makes the job harder. It makes, it makes us preserving that unity in the bond of peace. It makes us rely more on the grace of God. It's not going to be as natural for us. Uh, and then in, in the church globally, it gets... It gets real hard because um, groups of Christians like to get very particular about certain doctrinal neat nick things and they like to throw rocks at each other because they forgot that we all have one enemy and his name is Satan. and uh, He's about destroying all that God is trying to do and we need to you know, get on that train <laughs> and handle that issue as opposed to be bickering with one another over stuff that, in the end, you know, a lot of people are sure about things I'm not sure they should be sure about. Did you track with that? Try to say that ten times fast. <clears throat> I made it through it one time fast. I'm feeling pretty good right now. So, so how do we walk in this responsibility? How do we walk out this responsibility as mature believers to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace? How do we do that? Okay. There's, there's probably more ways. I'm going to give you a few. Uh, the first is to believe what you just said. I just asked you that if you want to be a mature believer and not a child, that you would that you would say out loud that unity is my responsibility. And so the first step is to believe that, is to really grab a hold of that and believe it. Romans 12, 18 says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So what that means is don't wait for the other person to come to you, right? Blessed are the peacemakers according to Jesus. Blessed are those that go and actively seek to make peace. Not just, I'm going to stand here in my little square, and if you, if you want to come approach me and make peace with me, well, that's fine. We're supposed to be active and, and aggressive. Uh, it might sound counterintuitive, but sometimes you've got to fight for peace. Amen. This phrase, if possible, so far as it depends on you, that doesn't sound like, you know, sending someone a text that says, hey, we cool, you know. And if they don't respond well, then you get to say, well, there, I tried. See, they're being unreasonable. If possible, so far as it depends on you, this is the phrase, if possible, so far as it depends on you, that sounds to me like you you pray like crazy and you ask Jesus to help you walk in peace and unity, even with people that you struggle to like. I know some of you are just so amiable and nice and sweet that you've never met somebody you struggled to like. But there's a few of us out here that aren't just that naturally sweet. I guess I found a few, a few uh, people to commiserate with there. All right. Um, even people that struggle, you struggle to like, because here's, here's the deal. When, when you're walking in this type of maturity, you aren't willing to push blame off on them and expect them to fix the problem, okay? And if we all got a hold of this type of tenacious and mature perspective... The devil and his pitiful little bag of tricks that he uses to sow discord among us, it wouldn't stand a chance. If everybody was grabbing a hold of, as much as it has to do with me, be at peace with all men. That means whatever it takes on my side, I will exert every effort possible to make peace with every single person, even if they're acting like they don't want to have peace with me. the scriptures are very wise, God is very wise, and that's why he said, as much as it has to do with you, be at peace with all men, because you can't make everybody join you in that effort of making peace. But you can, even, even if you do everything you feel like you can, you pray your guts out, you're on your face before the master, and you ask him to anoint you and help you to be a peacemaker after... Uh, the fashion of him and and the person still doesn't want to come and meet you there and doesn't want to make peace with you. That doesn't mean the position of your heart changes that now you get to just close that off and decide I'm done. Then we just move into a a position of we, we submit that situation and that person to the Lord and we ask him to move on their hearts and still desire that reconciliation and that peace that comes. We never get off the hook of caring about cultivating unity and peace among us. Uh, That's just the mature perspective. I understand that we could be children and and expect everybody else to do it and and try to shirk their responsibility, but we're just talking about what the Scriptures are talking about today, which is what mature Christ followers do. That's just where we're at today. Everyone okay with that? All right. Amen. So the first thing is believe what you said. Unity is your responsibility. The second is to deal with offense quickly and properly. I'm going to read you something from Matthew 18. It says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So here's what that means. If you have a problem with somebody, quit going around and venting, because that venting is just another word for sinning. No amens? Really? On that one? Okay. (laughs) Thought I had a real grand slam there. No, I knew what was going to happen. I'm going to press it even farther. We need to quit veiling, trying to cover hypocritical gossip as prayer requests, because that is an immature excuse to skip this process Jesus gave us for conflict resolution. If you have an issue with somebody, you have two people you can go talk to about it. Jesus, through prayer, and that person. If you aren't upset enough about the issue to gather the gumption to go talk to the person directly, then just forgive them and move on because it must not be that big of a deal. It's much easier to go talk to somebody else about the thing that you're all steamed up about than it is to go have to actually confront the person that the issue's with. And and Jesus is so smart He puts roadblocks in the way to help us get our heart right. before. Because sometimes, sometimes, okay, I'm going to blow your mind here. Sometimes you get offended over stuff that you shouldn't be offended about. It ain't even that big of a deal. You okay with that? That's happened before in your life. We do, don't we? Sometimes we're foolish. Sometimes we're quick to anger and and, and quick to speak and slow to listen. (laughs) Sometimes we just reverse James, get it all twisted up. So when, when you are committed to, for the sake of unity and obedience to Jesus, only dealing with conflict the way that he is commanded, if you're only going to be talking to Jesus or that person about it and you have to actually grapple with the reality of, okay, I'm going to have to go have this difficult conversation, um, that might make you realize you're not as offended as you thought you were and that you can just forgive them in light of how much Jesus has forgiven you of. if you are bothered enough by the issue to go talk to that person, sometimes that's the case. And and honestly, there's a third way that I, I guess I almost forgot to mention. There's a third way, which is bottle it up and just talk nasty to yourself about it and just let it build up as like poison in your heart. That's definitely not an option because that totally contributes to disunity and discord and everything Satan really likes. So that's also not another option. So if it's not a big enough deal that you're willing to go deal with with them about it, then just forgive them and move on because Jesus has forgiven you a lot. But if it's a serious infraction that needs to be dealt with, you also can't just bottle it because you're scared of conflict. If you do need to go talk to them, go do it. Make sure you do talk to Jesus first through prayer and ask him to help you go humbly and for the purpose of resolving the issue and preserving the unity that he purchased with his blood. Okay, because motive matters. Just because you get ticked off enough to go shoot off at the mouth of somebody doesn't mean you're following Matthew 18. Because the point is to seek for reconciliation and restoration. That's always the point of going to have that. Sometimes conflict is needed. Unity, from a biblical perspective, is not a lack of conflict. It's a gospel-centered motivation to work through and commitment to work through conflict by the rules that God has established. Out of a motivation of love. Okay? Now, one more time for the people in the back. Metaphorically, of course, doesn't matter where you're sitting in here. If you don't go talk to the person who you believe has sinned against you, don't go talking to other people about it. Satan uses this kind of foolishness to harm families and churches all the time. It's a very common tactic he pulls out of that pitiful little bag of tricks he's got. Okay, So don't play into that. Now, quick caveat that needs to be said. If the sin committed against you is criminal in nature or there is legitimate danger in confronting the person, Romans 13 says that God has given governmental authorities a sword to deal with those issues. The point being here that even church leaders should not handle discipline on our own when crimes have been committed. God has given the government authority to dispense justice in those cases. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? Okay, that's very important. Third, forgive quickly in light of all that you've been forgiven. I'm talking about three ways that we, as mature followers of Jesus, can walk out this responsibility we have to preserve the unity of the bond of peace. Forgive quickly in light of all you've been forgiven. There's so many things I could say about this, but there's just literally nothing better than Jesus' parable on the matter. So I'm just going to read that to you. Uh, It starts with Peter coming up and basically doing kind of what I was trying to do with Natalie in the trash. He's trying to say something to impress Jesus. (laughs) It's really funny. Then Peter came up and said, Lord, how many or how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That's 490 there, mathletes. Okay? If you're offended 490 times in a day, the other people might not be the problem. I'll let let you marinate with that. Okay. Jesus follows up with a parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. This was a ton of money. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children, all that he had and repayment to be made. So the servant fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that servant felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, very little amount of money. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow servant fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow servants saw what happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow servant in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Any additional commentary needed on that, or do we get that point? I need to keep a constant flow of grace and mercy and the Lord's forgiveness pointed at me, okay? Okay? Because sometimes I think and, and say and do some old foolish stuff. So I can't afford to be holding things against other people and, and, and interrupting that mercy being new every morning for me. I don't know about you. Maybe you're doing better than I am. And you think you can afford a day without God's mercy. But I doubt it. Okay? I, you know, there's, nothing, there's no way for me to say it more severely or more clearly than the Lord Jesus did here in this parable. So let, let's forgive quickly. for the sake of unity and out of obedience. Praise God. That's that's what a mature follower of Jesus would do. Children children don't do that. Children get their feelings hurt and and they hold on to it and they're going to be angry about it for a long time. Uh, that's, That's what immaturity looks like, but that's the very opposite of what we're talking about. That brings us to verses 11 and 12. Let's read those again. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Here we see Jesus did not just create this unity in the body of Christ through his life, death, and resurrection, but he has also given the body of Christ in order to build her up leaders who are called to equip the saints for the work of service. That's the language. I want to just make a small aside here before I dive into this. Um, we we believe that there are still apostolic and prophetic giftings at work in the body of Christ today, but that is different than the office of apostle or prophet, and there's confusion around that, so I just wanted to address it. Uh, and When I say the office of apostle or prophet, I mean like the ones that God used to write scripture, right? We're talking like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and those guys, and then like, you know, on the apostle side, you got... Uh, Peter, James, John, and all the rest, right, Paul? So those guys are prophets tied directly to Jesus. They interacted one-on-one with Jesus, and the authority to write Scripture and kind of be on that level came directly from Jesus. Um, OT prophets kind of stand different than somebody that might have a gifting of prophecy today. So what does that mean? What, What does it look like? Those with an apostolic gifting... They would tend to be good at things like planting churches, maybe providing leadership for networks or groups of churches, but they are not on the same level of authority as the 12 apostles of Jesus. That's important because there are people that are confused about that. There are guys that think they are on the same level as the apostles uh, that rolled with Jesus and wrote scripture, and they think that when they speak, it carries the same weight as scripture, and that is dead wrong. Okay? Okay. Uh, Those with a prophetic gifting, they tend to declare God's word with a special urgency uh, and clarity. They may tend to uh, be used to challenge the body of Christ um, in times of apathy. They may also have some spirit-revealed insights about where things are headed, but they are not on the level of authority that the Old Testament prophets who wrote Scripture are. Okay? So... There is Those gifts are still operating in the body of Christ for the building up and equipping of the saints, but it's not the same as the office of those apostles and prophets that we see in the Scriptures, okay? Uh, Book of Revelation is pretty clear. Nobody's writing any more Scripture. Nobody else is saying things that are on the level of Scripture. God's Word is full, it's revealed, it's authoritative, and it's done, okay? Um, I don't know if he's writing more for us to read later when we get to eternity. That'd be great. Um, Eternal Bible study, I'm down for that. But right here and now... The book is closed um, in terms of adding anything. So that's real important (laughs) because people can get a little screwy, okay? So let's not do that. Now, these verses lay out in a condensed format what the rest of the scriptures all harmoniously declare. God's intention is not to have a group of elite professional ministers do the work of the ministry, while other believers just give finances regularly and sacrificially so that those guys can be paid. That's not the model. Now, let me say this, so as not to overcorrect. We all should give regularly and sacrificially in light of all Jesus has done for us. That's clearly commanded in the New Testament. Okay, good. Amen. People always like that when you talk about money, you know, because it's just an exciting subject. So, We should, I got no problem saying it, we should all give regularly and sacrificially in light of all that Jesus has done, man. Jesus gave a lot. Jesus gave till it hurt a lot. I'm going to give till it at least hurts a little. And there is nothing wrong with church leaders being paid so that they can focus on equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Paul even makes arguments throughout the New Testament that it's problematic when churches are not willing to support leaders in the call that God has called them to. So that's not what I'm saying, but what I am saying is, there's not supposed to be this elite group of professional ministers and everyone else's job is just to go work out in the marketplace and uh, you know toss some dollars in something and and that's the extent of it that's not the model the biblical model is that the church leaders care for and cultivate the grace that verse 7 told us was given to each believer equipping them to fulfill the great commission and What is the Great Commission? The Great Commission is the instructions Jesus left us. It's the mission he gave us to accomplish until he returns to claim us for eternity. That Great Commission is to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. And Jesus thankfully said, I will be with you to the end of the age. And so his Great Commission is for us to go into all the world and make disciples. And so if you want to be a mature follower of Jesus and not a child, I want you to say this. Making disciples is my responsibility. Go ahead if you want to be a mature believer. Making disciples is my responsibility. You believe that? It is. So how should church leadership be preparing you for your responsibility of making disciples? I'll give you a couple things. First of all, it's teaching you the word. In 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul writing to Timothy, said, and to Timothy said, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, into teaching. These are the things Paul told him to emphasize. In John 21, we see Jesus having this tender moment with Peter after he cooked everybody breakfast. Uh, Peter had denied him three times. Jesus gives him a chance to publicly uh, undeny him three times. Jesus says uh, to Peter repeatedly, uh, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me more than these? And Peter says, of course, Jesus, you know I love you. And he says to him, then feed my sheep. And what he's talking about there We know from the rest of the word of God that this this word of God is, is the bread of life. That when we're talking about feeding God's people spiritual nourishment, it comes from his word. And so that is a primary responsibility of church leaders is to teach the church of God the word of God. We see that from Paul's instructions. We see it from the way that Jesus talked to Peter, what he emphasized. That's not the only thing he said. We'll hit that in a second. So, Teach you the word of God. That's how church leaders, one of the primary ways they should be preparing you so that you can step into the responsibility and role as a mature follower of Jesus of making disciples. Okay? Second is to care for your soul. Hebrews Hebrews 13.17 says that church leaders are supposed to keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And so that means that those who God calls to be leaders in the church... I'm just using that broad term because I don't want to say all, depending on your count, four or five. There's some people that think would call that the five-fold ministry, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. There's some that would combine pastor and teacher. That's one of those things that people like to argue about. I'm not going to argue about it with you, so amen. Uh, I'm just broadly calling those leaders in the church, okay? So they, they are charged with um, keeping watch over the souls of people. And so that, <clears throat> of course, includes prayer. That includes uh, Knowing what's going on in people's lives and, and taking them before the throne, that's um, just praying for people in, in general and asking God to, to help them, be with them. That's a, a serious part of what church leadership is supposed to do in, in training and, and moving people towards uh, this maturity in God. It's interesting that um, the word equipping here, that uh, we see it's in the Greek, it, it carries with it a connotation of like, Um, mending what is broken to some degree. And that's real interesting because in caring for the souls of the people, uh, what church leaders are supposed to be doing is um, loving them and helping them through difficult situations, helping them to heal brokenness that sin has caused in their life, either if it's, whether it's your own sin or it's sin committed against you, whatever that brokenness is, church leaders are supposed to be helping to bring healing to that so that you can be healthy enough to go and help others heal, right? Because when somebody's busted and bleeding and all messed up and, and, and in a real bad way, it's very hard for them to then go and be pouring out of that condition help and healing and blessing uh, to other people and to be a part of making disciples. And so in caring for the souls, caring for the, the the emotions and the whole person, that's part of what church leaders are supposed to do. They're supposed to be praying and they're supposed to be uh, mending and and. That comes through pastoral care, that comes also through prayer, and comes through uh, bringing the truth of the Word of God to bear into difficult situations. Um, Not easy, uh, and it'll teach you real quick how much you need the Holy Spirit's help, for sure. Thirdly, uh, church leaders are supposed to challenge you to mature and embrace your God-given purpose. Where do I see that? Well, in John 21, back to Jesus and Peter, uh, he did say, Peter, did you love me? And Peter said, of course I love you. And he did say, feed my sheep. But then one of the times of the three, he said, shepherd my sheep. Shepherd my sheep. And you'll see that language all through. Peter really grabbed onto that. That conversation with Peter, you can tell, impacted the whole way he thought about the dynamic of church leaders loving and serving uh, the church of God because his language is almost, he almost just glues to that idea of, of being a shepherd. Uh, if you look at the epistles that he wrote, very that was very cemented in his mind. I'm sure it was uh, for obvious reasons because of the way that interaction went. But that shepherding of the sheep, part of what that is, you know, when, when, when a shepherd is leading sheep, um, sometimes sheep don't know where to go. Sometimes sheep fall in holes. Sometimes sheep will try to eat stuff that'll kill them. Uh, and they need, you know, that's why shepherds carry a rod, and they kind of, you know, knock them along, and here we go, come on, here's green grass that's going to help you, here's fresh water that's going to be good for you, Uh, avoid that hole right there, please, so that we don't have to dig you out of that. Uh, That's part of the job of a shepherd, and so that's all of that, what it kind of looks like is that's, there's this prodding idea, Hebrews 10.24 picks up that language where it says, spur each other on to love and good works, that's a that's a common uh, commandment for all of the body of Christ, but definitely something that leaders in the body of Christ should be doing, shepherds should be doing, is pushing, spurring uh, people on, making sure they're not running backwards, uh, make sure they're not just sitting down on the path, uh, taking a rest, you know, and, and not progressing, walking along and maturing in this race that Jesus has called them to. So it's, there's an there's a idea that church leaders should be challenging. And what, what, is all, what are we talking about? This is all of the ways that church leaders should be, Um helping equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So I'm giving you some real practicality of what that looks like. That also looks like helping you see that in taking responsibility to love others, to love others and help them know Jesus, you're gonna find more joy and peace than you ever will find focused on yourself. Um, Just that's that's part of the, you know, (laughs) apostles and evangelists and, and pastors, teachers. If they're really faithful to Jesus and they're really teaching the word of God, one thing that they're going to be doing constantly in trying to love the sheep is to convince them that their greatest joy is going to be found in serving God and serving others. And that's, a very, that's counterintuitive. That goes against every natural fiber of our being, right? Um, we're very much like survival geared. It's like, I'm going to get mine, and if anybody else gets some, fine. Uh, but that's not really... What true joy and purpose looks like, uh, Jesus said. We like this verse at Christmas time, but we tend to forget it. Other than that, that it's more blessed to give than receive, and that is a universal principle. That if we embrace it, and uh, by f- you know, you're going to have to start walking that by faith, because you're probably not just going to believe off rip that you laying down your life and sacrificing for the good of others is going to lead to more joy than you doing everything you can to get everything you think you want. It's that's a very hard pill to swallow. But if you'll start to walk that out by faith and trust Jesus, and uh, mature and walk in that path, take that responsibility upon yourself. You'll you'll see that His word once again will be proven true. Is there anybody in here that can witness to that? That you've maybe done both. You've done the whole uh, "I'm gonna get rich or die trying" or you whatever it looked like for you. Uh, I'm gonna get mine or I'm gonna be about me and, and doing my thing. You've done that, and you've you know you've seen how much happiness and fulfillment and joy and peace you got from that pursuit and then you've also tried to faithfully follow after the model of Jesus and serve others and love others and lay down your life to uh, give instead of receive, and you've, you've seen the joy and peace that comes from that. How, how many of you could say, yes, Jesus is actually right about this? Anybody seen that out there? Praise God. That's awesome. Chalk one up again for the Lord. We haven't found one yet where he didn't get the point, but I don't think we will, right? Amen. So everything that I just said, those three things about leaders equipping uh, saints for the work of the ministry, this it practically it has a couple practical applications for the way we approach things here at Love City Church that I just want to share with you because we're here and it is, makes a lot of sense. So one thing I need you to know, want you to know is because of the model laid forth in the scriptures, because of the way the Bible talks about this, that church leaders are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. They're supposed to be pushing you towards... The Great Commission and and, and making disciples. So, so what we're not going to do is we're not going to depend on like really great marketing techniques to draw people to an awesome consumer experience on Sundays that we hope they'll come back to. Okay? And I don't have anybody in mind when I'm talking about that. I just know that that is a model. I know sometime during the late 80s and 90s, we began to believe that Sunday services was like our best primary evangelism tool. And Uh, that can lead to problematic implications in the way we do things, okay? The Sunday service, at least for us, is not primarily evangelistic in nature. Now, Paul does give instructions in Corinthians that, you know, he says, unbelievers might come in, so you need to be mindful of that. You need to understand that God may use the Sunday service as somebody's first contact on their way to getting to know Jesus, so we need to think about that. We need to be organized, right? He says don't do tongues of palooza because nobody knows what anybody's saying, uh, and that might be difficult and, and might scare somebody off, so do things decent and in order. We need to understand unbelievers may come in. That's why we do our best to be hospitable and understand that, listen, man, this might be somebody's first contact with Christians, so let's let's basically think of this like our house, you know, like When you got people coming over, unless you have a very specific personality type, most people look around and like, if stuff's all messy, you know, your anxiety's going to hop a little bit and you're going to be running around cleaning stuff up because you don't want people to come in your home and feel like you didn't care that they were coming. You're probably going to have a snack ready or something, right? Um, Do something, try a little bit. And um, that's that's good. That's hospitality. And we want to have that same mentality here, but not take that into a place where we're depending on some, some gimmicks and tricks. Uh, thinking that that's going to fulfill the Great Commission. Because um, it won't. So, the, the primary focus is to continue equipping you for Sundays, is to con- continue equipping you to go from here, to mature, and to be ready to take on the responsibility of sharing the gospel and walking with people as they learn what it means to serve Jesus. Because that is what making disciples looks like. So that's primarily what we're doing here on Sundays. Are we aware that Somebody that does not yet know Jesus may come in. Yes, if you're here today and that's you, welcome. We love you. You are welcomed here. Just want you to know that we didn't build this whole thing and we're not doing everything we're doing to try to impress you um, in in hopes that that's going to somehow manipulate you into following Jesus because that's not how it works. Um, People coming to follow Jesus uh, is a work of the Spirit of God upon their heart and it's, it's a miracle and it takes God's uh, moving, and if we think we can build something fake that's going to trick you into that, it, that would never work. And so that's not what's happening. That's not what's not. That's not what's going to happen. Uh, and I say amen to that. Yeah. So, amen. So this is why this is why we don't tell you at the end of every service to invite someone to gather with us next week. We tell you at the end of every service to go tell somebody about Jesus, because we're equipping you for the work of the ministry. We're equipping you to answer the Great Commission. The, the, the deal is don't, we, the best case scenario is not that you bring somebody here to, to hear somebody that you think is good at preaching. And maybe that's if we had a visiting preacher. Um, but that's not what we're about, right? That's not what we're doing. That's not what this lays out for us as, as the pattern. <clears throat> Let me be clear. I'm not saying you can never invite someone to gather here with us on a Sunday without first leading them to Christ and, that, and helping them learn to be a disciple. Okay, I'm not saying you can't do that. But I am telling you, the best case scenario is that by the time you invite someone to come gather with us here, you have shared Jesus with them, and that you are seeking to walk with them and teach them what it means to follow Jesus. That is what this lays out as the pattern. Not that we set this up to to make it easy for you so that you never get in a situation where you're nervous, and you can just bring people to the cool thing and kind of shove them off to the professionals. Okay? Okay. That's you all said. It's my responsibility to make disciples. I know I kind of made you, but you said it. So, <laughs> what are we going to do here? <laughs> um, <clears throat> along those lines, I want you to know that even even though it is the leadership of the church's job to equip you to do the work of the ministry to answer the Great Commission. And that's going to look different for every person. Different people are going to have different approaches to that. Some people are going to be more relational. Some of you have no problem uh, walking up to a stranger and striking up a, a conversation about Jesus. So there are different gifts, there, and that's going to be expressed different ways. Um, I hope it sticks. I hope that it, it lasts. I, Max is like a mini evangelist. That dude does not care who you are, how scary you look. Does not, he will walk up, start asking you some questions, and he'll, he'll just take it from there. No problem. We'll be walking down the street. Someone will be across the street. I'm talking too far for it to be polite to be talking to him. And he's waving like a madman. Hey! You know, and I'll have Lucy with me. And she's like pulling her hood up like, Dad, tell him to stop. (laughs) So, you know, people are different. And uh, they're going to approach this differently. And that's okay. I'm I'm not saying there's a one size fits all. But here's the one size that does fits all. That wasn't the right way to say that. Here's the one size that does fit all. Go and make disciples. That's for everybody. We do have some tools to try to help you. Uh, First of all, I'm not sure if if you're aware, out at the Connection Kiosk, we have these cards. Okay, and You might say, hold on, I thought you said the the first goal wasn't to invite someone. Well, it's it's not necessarily, uh, it's it's not a bad thing to tell them, hey, I'm a part of this this gospel-centered, faithful church that really loves Jesus and we're about what Jesus is about, and that's cool. But on the back, what we've done is we've put a space for your name and your number or email. And so we're hoping that you'll carry some of these and you'll have it filled out so that when you talk to somebody about Jesus, maybe you can only have a two or three minute conversation. Maybe you only get to share a part of your testimony, but the conversation goes well. It seems like maybe that person is a person of peace that wants to hear more. And you're like, hey, here's my number. And they're going to remember what it was for. And then this will give them an opportunity to maybe look on the website, see some of the resources we have there. Because uh, and, and, all of that is geared towards accomplishing this one mission. Everything we're doing is about one thing. It's about loving God, loving people, and making disciples. That's what we are doing. Flat out. Okay? So those are the Connection kiosks. I would encourage all of you, take a couple. Fill them out. Have them with you. Expect God to open doors for you to have conversations. Pray to that end. Amen? Uh, something else that we're doing consistently is we're trying to uh, put content onto social media that you can take and use. Uh, there's a button on there that says share. I'm not sure if you've seen that, but Uh, That's a good one. I'm kidding, actually. A ton of you have caught on to this and you do really good at it. But I want you to know that we think through every single thing we post and we try to make sure there's a lot of things that you could take and grab and stick it on your wall that you don't have to or your feed or whatever language you want to use. You could take that and stick it on there, and now all the people that you know that the rest of us don't know are, gonna have, are now going to have an opportunity to see that gospel-centered content. And so we're not just throwing that up there. That's not a primary tool we're trying to use to draw people to come to Sunday gatherings. That's not really a marketing tool. Everything that we're putting out there is, is A, to encourage you, to keep spurring you on to maturity and to grow and take on more responsibility as a follower of Jesus. Uh, there's things that we're going to put on there that, <clears throat> yeah, are going to make people... Um, aware that we exist in case they are looking for a group of gospel-centered, Jesus-loving people to be on mission with, like, yeah, come on. But primarily and ultimately what we're looking to do in everything that we put out onto the internet is we're looking to connect people to Jesus that are not connected to him. We're looking to share the truth of God's word. And uh, in doing that, and us putting that out, you can use that. Now, I know some of you don't feel, you know, listen, do I understand that social media can be a portal to like the gates of Hades? Yes. I understand that it can go that way. Um, but you know, it's one of those conversations we have to have about receive, reject, redeem, right? What are we going to do? Are we just going to flat out reject it and say social media is actually, you know, all of the cords for the interwebs run down to hell itself. And like, you know, Satan's running the internet. Do we believe that? Eh, Probably not. Is it a communication tool that we can redeem? Does it have some problems? Are there things we need to watch out for? Yes. We can't just receive it wholeheartedly. We can't take everything on the internet and say, yes, all this is good. We affirm that, right? But we can redeem it, and we have the possibility for communication uh, and to get the gospel out in ways that we never have uh, in the history of mankind. And honestly, I think Jesus expects us to do something with it. So I would just submit that to you for prayer. Maybe there's reasons you're iffy about that, and if you are, if there's something I'm missing, come, come tell me. I'd be happy to talk about it, okay? Here's the grand finale, the big point of today. It's that Jesus has called us to be mature disciples, not easily distracted children, and in order to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, we must be willing to take responsibility for unity among us and for the mission given to us. May we be a mature and responsible people who walk in a manner worthy of bearing the name of Christ for his glory and our good. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Thank you for the first half of Ephesians chapter 4. Thank you, God, for this in-your-face kind of truth that we uh, came across today. Thank you, God, for Uh, bringing things to our attention that that need to be brought to our attention. Thank you, God, for laying upon us the responsibility of maturity. God, I think so often we we have a tendency to kind of shirk these things, to to push off onto other people the responsibility. And uh, God, we know that that's not what you've called us to. We want to be mature followers. We want to not act like children that are tossed to and fro by the waves of situations in this life and every false doctrine. God, we want to be rooted in what you're rooted in. And that's in in love and in the truth of your gospel. So please help us with these things, God. Um, Lord, please, by the power of your spirit, we ask that you would put within us a burning desire to preserve unity among us. God, may we see it with the same level of importance you do. Lord Jesus, I want to join you in your prayer. In John 17, when you prayed One of the last things you were thinking about before you went to the cross was the unity of your people and the power that would have to communicate the reality and the power of your gospel in the world. So please, Lord, let us see it the way you see it. God, help us to preserve unity, to care about it, to fight for it when it's necessary. And God, help us to push back against the forces of darkness that would seek to sow discord among us at every turn. God, please, please, Help us to step up and take responsibility for discipleship. Verse 7 today told us that each one of us has had your grace poured on us. And yes, that grace was how we were pardoned. That's that's the the vehicle of mercy um, by which we were made your sons and daughters. But it's also an empowering grace that gives us the ability to go and to do this incredible task that you've invited us to be a part of, that you've commanded us to Thank you that we get to make disciples. Thank you, God. You could have used angels. You could have done it yourself. There's so many other ways you could have done this, and yet, out of love for your children, you've drawn us in, and you've allowed us to be a part of the great redemption plan of all of history. Thank you, God, that we get to join you in rescuing lost souls from darkness and bringing them to light. Thank you, God, we get to join you in raising the dead and bringing them to life. Thank you, God, that we get to participate and have the joy of knowing that we are working in our Father's field doing what it is we were made to do. Thank you, God. But we can't do it alone. We falter and we're so frail. Oftentimes, God, we need your help. Please help us to care deeply about disciple making. God, help us to be accurate in our own summation of where we stand. God, help us not to overassume our maturity. Help us not to overassume our obedience. God, may we be accurate in the way we see ourselves. Help us to judge ourselves rightly, lest we so we don't need to be judged. God, please help us. We love you, and we thank you. Thank you that we can call these things out to you, that we know that you hear us. Thank you, God, that we know as we pray these things that are in line with your word, we know that they're your will, and so we know that we can have them. We love you, and we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio.